0: Welcome to episode 5 of The Great American Folk Show, a little place in this space that celebrates the craft and community of art and the people who make it. I'm Tom Brousseau from Grand Forks, North Dakota, and from West Fargo by way of Baltimore, Maryland, producer Eric Deathridge
1: Oh, my hype man, Tom Brousseau, I'm supposed to be hyping you, I'm your hype man, but I feel like you hyped me there. Well, yeah, Tom, I'm what they call around these parts a transplant. And you know who else reinvented himself? by moving from Charm City, as they call Baltimore, to another part of the country, and like me, embraced, but unlike me, helped define and export the culture of that vibrant music scene? Yeah, I do, none other
0: than my good buddy, John Doe, the frontman of the legendary trailblazing Los Angeles punk band X. And when we described the late Shane McGowan last time as a punk poet, that description can be applied to the man who ran a poetry reading service in Baltimore, then met his singing partner and future spouse, Exine Srivanka, at a California poetry workshop right in Venice, California, of all places. The band X
1: put out albums from the late 1970s to the early 1990s. And surviving creative differences and a divorce, X still are doing it with uh, Billy Zoom and uh, Exine and John Doe, drummer DJ Bonebreak, with their three-chord authority flipping uh, <laughs> music. Someone But, you know, X had a maturity, Tom, to their lyrics that was sort of different than uh, the Ramones, uh, you know, singing Beat on the Brad, Beat on the Brad. I mean, they had a little more depth to it. They were very adult. And that was John Doe with the Poet who kind of later embraced the California landscape that he was in as uh, atmospheric for a sort of new style of Western folk noir, if you will. He kind of had this parallel track, this parallel career, notably with Dave Alvin of The Blasters, another California punk band with a rockabilly twist. Dave and John also were in X together for a time, see how we are. One of the albums that uh, Dave Alvin was part of, as well as the Americana X offshoot with that scene called The Knitters. Check out this John Doe solo song that expands upon that California atmosphere noir a little bit. It's called Alone in Arizona.
2: My heart is blue with losing you. My soul is still. I'm losing you The road is rough I'm losing you The sun beats down I'm losing you My heart's in California I'm alone in Arizona My heart's in
0: California I'm alone in Arizona. John Doe has worked with Ray Manzarek of The Doors, Dan Auerbach, Patty Griffin, and check out a sample of this great duet with Kathleen Edwards, aptly titled The Golden State. Ah, one of my favorite duets. Joe joined us for one of our very first Great American Folk Show broadcasts. So much fun to have him on the show. Kind of tax him in a different way. He read a story that my father wrote about, well, the Bruso family lore. And well, you can tell why John Doe was tapped to act in movies like, okay, my personal favorite, <laughs> Roadhouse, and many others.
3: My dog, Mickey, was bound to be special. He was born in January outdoors in sub-zero weather under our neighbor's porch in North Dakota. He was the only pup in the litter and the neighbors had never seen the mother or Mickey until the day he was born. I was two years old at the time and my brother was one. My dad was just back from the war, World War II, and he and my mother adopted Mickey. We named him after a farm dog my mother's family had when she was a young girl. Mickey's mother ran off and was later shot by a farmer because she killed one of his sheep. We used to have a blurry snapshot of Mickey and his mother taken on a winter day shortly after he was born, but I don't know what happened to it. I remember Mickey's mother as looking a lot like Mickey with long black and white hair. Mickey grew up with my brother and me, and he was our constant companion. He was treated pretty much as an equal to the humans in our family. There were no leash laws back then, and all dogs roamed freely about town. Sure some kids got nipped once in a while but that would only happen if they were teasing or threatening the dog. We used to think that such kids had it coming. Mickey slept on his side on a braided rug in our little dining room. He seemed to have a lot of dreams which would cause him to make faint whining sounds and move his legs as if he were running. He'd usually wake himself up from these dreams and then he would seem to feel foolish for talking and running in his sleep. Mickey liked to play with us in the backyard. He followed us when we rode our bikes to the park. He never learned any dog tricks, but he did learn one skill, which I never knew any other dog to have. He could open doors. Pop put a little handle at the bottom of the screen doors to our house and my dad's barber shop. Mickey would put his paw on the handle, open the door a few inches, then put his nose inside the door and let himself in. My grandfather had a dog, Buster, who knew all kinds of tricks, shake hands, roll over, tug-of-war. But Buster could never master the art of opening the screen door. He always had to rely on Mickey to let him inside. Buster was also good at starting fights with other dogs, but he relied on Mickey to finish his fights for him. Mickey saved Buster's life many times, and Buster never seemed to appreciate it. Mickey was a good fighter. We never knew him to lose a fight with another dog. All the other dogs in town gave him a wide berth. He was cock of the walk. One time, my dad's cousin came to town on a visit. He brought his dog with him, a big, black, mean-looking dog who wouldn't stop barking when he saw Mickey. The cousin said he would leave him in the car because he knew he would kill Mickey if he let him out. Pop told him to go ahead, let his dog out of the car. When he did, Mickey had that dog on his back within seconds, his neck between his jaws. The cousin had to put his dog back in the car to protect him from Mickey. There was no more barking after that. Being the cock of the walk in our town Mickey had lots of liaisons with lady dogs. Our local priest had a nice-looking little poodle that Mickey took a liking to. The priest tried his best to keep the two apart but one day he came home to find Mickey and the poodle alone in the house in his upstairs bedroom yet he cornered Mickey and took after him with a broom. In order to escape, Mickey jumped out of an upstairs window onto the porch roof then down to the ground. The priest told us that before Mickey trotted off he turned and barked twice as if to acknowledge that he had accomplished his mission. Mickey liked to ride in the car. He preferred to sit in the front seat and we usually let him do so. One time my dad put him in the driver's seat and then sat beside him and operated the car from the front passenger seat. They drove down Main Street, and many people saw them. Pop said Mickey could probably have driven without any help, because he was such a smart dog. One time Mickey was shot in the abdomen by a neighborhood hoodlum. We could see the bullet hole in his side, and he lost a lot of blood. My dad and my brother and I took him to a vet about 20 miles away. I remember that Mickey was very quiet lying in the back seat of the car during the trip. The vet told us there was nothing he could do, but that Mickey might survive because the guts are flexible. We never forgot his words. We took Mickey home then, and he licked his wound for a few days and drank a lot of water, and somehow he made a complete recovery. About a year before he died, Mickey had a stroke, which left him blind on his left side and quite feeble. He would still follow my dad to the barbershop every day, about three blocks from where we lived. Sometimes Pop would tell Mickey he had to stay home because he was too weak. Mickey seemed to understand, but he would often follow him anyway, just a little further behind than usual. One day, the train was coming through town. When Pop saw the train, he turned around and saw that Mickey was following about a block back. He did not see the train, because it was on his blind side. The train and Mickey were on a collision course. Pop was afraid to call out to Mickey for fear that he would jump in front of the train. All he could do was watch. As it turned out, Mickey and the train arrived at the same point at the same time the train bumped into the very tip of Mickey's nose, causing him to step back. Mickey waited for the train to pass. Then he resumed walking after my dad. Mickey got weaker and weaker after his stroke. He no longer followed my dad to work. He was content to stay home. One cold winter day, Pop came home to find Mickey frozen to the sidewalk, apparently from another stroke. However, he was still alive and wagged his tail when he saw my dad. Pop carried him into the house. That night, my parents decided that he had to be put to sleep they called the local policeman who did the job and even buried mickey wrapped in my dad's army blanket out back of our garden he told my dad that it was like burying an old friend everyone liked mickey my brother and i were away at college when mickey died we cried when we heard he was gone i know mom and Pop felt terrible, too. My dad always found understanding and comfort in the words of popular songs. When Mickey died, Pop reminded us of the song, Old Shep, which ends with these words, If dogs have a heaven, there's one thing I know, Old Mickey has a wonderful home.
2: was freshly shorn and the moon was weak And an empty street stretched out before him He was 39 on December 10th With a birthday two weeks away The train went clickety-clickety beneath his feet And his clothes didn't fit so good anymore He could see his breath as he rode between The coach and the dining car home seemed so far away But he got there in less than half a day He knew the world kept spinning all the time he was gone But he couldn't say how it had changed talked to him quietly and she looked him in the eye and said you can stay as long as you like he smiled a little smile when she opened the window and let a little breeze inside he split two cords of wood and he painted the fence and he ate good food every day She got him a job Fixing cars for her uncle He liked getting dirty Then getting clean When he laid down at night And held to a hand He thought This is my sweet reward This is my sweet relief This is what I want This is what I've been praying for There's a black horse in the photograph His mane blows in your face a black horse in a photograph his mane blows in your face your eyes are hidden will you be taken away black and white feathers blow across the lawn Black and white feathers blow across the lawn The dog's sleeping on them The scaffold is already done We're hiding in the hills Rope hasn't snapped yet As many as baked in a pie Passes over your burning head As you prepare Probably scream for go away starts to go
0: away That was John Doe of the legendary LA punk band X singing some songs and reading a story that my dad wrote. The songs were Sweet Reward, Black Horse, and Twin Brother, and that story that he read is called Mickey and my
1: dad wrote that Jim Bruceo Oh, what a great dog Mickey was, and I <laughs> <laughs> love that story. Love love the Brousseau family lore, and you get these guys to read it, these rock stars, these punk rock stars in the case like this, <laughs> and, you know, it's one of these charm life things when I'm sitting across from you, Tom, and I always wonder, like, okay, how did this guy from North Dakota, talented singer, songwriter, and folk artist sort of get in with these stars, you know, these legends of these different genres, and, you know, how did this happen? How did you meet John Doe?
0: Well, let's see here. I-, I met John through a good friend of mine, Gregory Page, in San Diego, California, of all places. Gregory is an established singer-songwriter, long career in, in music. He eventually, in his own career, worked with John Doe in the studio and became friends. In fact, uh, I think the-, the record that they made was never released, but the friendship lasted. Yeah. And so when I was making some of my first music, in my career with Gregory Page, he said, you know what, I think that John Doe would love to hear some of this stuff. And, and anyway, I think what he meant by that was he didn't know if any of it was good. So he had to trust his friend John Doe <laughs> to see, you know, if it passed the test.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, And I distinctly remember him doing that. And John had called Gregory on his answering machine because in the early 2000s, People still had answering machines. I don't know if you had one. but (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And fax machines. And uh, Gregory called me over to his place, and he said, okay, I just heard from John, and you got to hear this. And so he pressed play on his answering machine, and it was John Doe and Viggo Mortensen. And they were saying, uh, you know, just really nice (laughs) things. About me but also about the production that Gregory had done to the songs yeah and so um, after that it wasn't too much longer that then I got a phone call from John saying you're new on the block and uh, how would you like to go on tour with me and and uh, and so I did and we had a great time and then what came of that was a sort of mentorship so when I think of John I think of um, I think of uh, that that guy who um, is dressed in denim, you know, jeans and a and a denim, you know, jean jacket, and uh, he probably doesn't say a whole lot, you know, but you can tell just by his mannerisms what to do and what not to do. So for me, John Doe has been like that silent character who uh, who's been a shepherd in my life. You ready, John? I'm ready. Okay.
4: I once had the power to make you sigh, confidence to love you and to hold you in my arms, and you held my attention. I knew.
1: was fork in the road with your host of the great american folk show tom brousseau and his buddy john doe as well as hillary Hahn. that song taken from tom's album from 2007 grand forks
0: steph stewart and mario arnaz are the north carolina duo blue cactus they don't consider their style of music to fit into any one area. Instead, their country, singer, songwriter, folk, and more all roll into one. And I've been listening to their albums since 2017. I detect the sound of the Maddox brothers and Rose in what they do, and also Skeeter Davis, two of my favorite performers. And added to this mixture is a little bit of Roots Rock and Roll. But in order to save themselves, The Blue Cactus Duo invented a new subgenre of country called Dream Country. It's a blend of grit, blitz, groove, and twang.
5: Yeah, I think uh, people need organization, and so they create things like genres to help. put things into little groups. Um, It's something that we're kind of hardwired to do even as little babies. You know, some of the first activities that children will do um, with toys is start organizing blocks into certain shape groups or certain color groups. And, um, you know, I was a Montessori teacher um, for a while, actually, um, in my previous career. And that's one of the biggest skills that we start to explore with young children is different ways of organizing things and helping them grow that skill set. So, you know, genre comes out of that hardwired sort of innate uh, need that I think humans have to put things into groups. Um, But it's a little problematic with music, especially with the music we make, because we don't really fit into one of those nice little neat groups.
6: Yeah. Well, it's, really satisfying to experience music and have it go exactly the way you expect it. You know, you you want Tony Rice, Del McCurry, Brian Sutton to hit that G run and have just everything be good and right in the world. And at the same time, we want to be surprised and challenged. We want someone to pull the rug out and twist the knife when we least expect it because we're supposed to feel things and transcend our day-to-day experience, and a way of getting to that heightened state of awareness is when you don't know what's going to happen next. I think when I'm in my most receptive and open-minded state and am wanting to receive art on its own terms, I don't necessarily want an external force like genre expectations telling me to think or feel a certain way unless it's part of the artist's intention but the reality is we probably will always associate the pedal steel with country music even when no other markings of the genre are present you know like it's a noise band or you know improvisational ambient stuff There are just certain sounds that have such deep roots there probably always will be characteristics that we can't help but connect with as ingrained distinctions and they're why we love what we love ultimately it all tells a story about us and if people like the boxes that's fine
7: Thank you. I could tell you one more thing, I'd be softer, I wouldn't be so mean. I'd just listen to what you're saying, when you're looking away, you ain't gotta say see you come next spring I'd shower you with love kisses raining from above and we go dancing when the music plays I ain't no Fred Astaire You don't seem to Are we going or we coming back? Are we we back? Are we walking or are we
8: running out of time?
7: Like a gym.
0: Resolution and come clean from the dream country sounds of Blue Cactus. I'm Tom Brusso, and you're listening to episode five of the Great American Folk Show podcast. Never miss an opportunity to hear her. That's what the BBC said about our next guest, Scottish singer Pauline Alexander. So here's your opportunity. She starts off with a song called The Dreamer. And in the spirit of this week, Pauline will share a Christmas story.
9: Hello. I'm Pauline Alexander from Glasgow in Scotland and I would like to wish Tom, Mary and all the listeners of the Great American Folk Show a very Merry Christmas. I hope whatever you're doing, whatever you have planned, I hope you have a wonderful time. Enjoy. (laughs)
10: tell you how it feels to be free. Might not last long time as running away from me. Bills keep coming and my head's in the sky. Regrets come To make their mark, find a hope and let it spark. Pick your dream and see it through. Watch it grow, make your life seem true. Make your life seem be seen. dream and see it through watch it grow make your life seem true make your life seem
9: back on the many memories of Christmas that you have in your life, I realised that a lot of the happiness, when you think back as a child, is always connected to the gifts you got or the things that you opened on the day. And that was very exciting. I was quite an excitable child. I was very difficult to calm down. I always felt a real build up about the day and I really enjoyed that but looking back a wee bit more as an adult I realised that a lot of the memories that I have and the happy feelings are connected to the fact that it's the feeling of how we were made to feel as children it wasn't so much what you got to open it, it was the magic was generated in the way my mum and dad cared enough to make it special and I really value that. I really value, you know, it could be built up for days, all the excitement about what the kind of day it was going to be. And one of the memories I actually have is of being awake late night on Christmas Eve. Um, as I said, I was a very excitable child and I remember this one night I was finding it difficult to sleep because, you know, you think about Santa, you think about, is he going to be at my house? You know, so you're listening out for the door, you're listening out for all these things when you can't sleep. And I just remember being awake and I could hear my dad in the kitchen in the other room. My mum and dad were up late, they were obviously preparing, getting things organised. But I just couldn't sleep and I was really excited. And then I was at the door. And my dad must have known that I was awake and at the door. Because I could hear him bumbling about in the kitchen. He'd had a couple of beers. And then he managed to convince me, without speaking to me, that Santa was in the other room. Now you would wonder, how did he do that? He did it quite easily. He opened the fridge and he started to list all these foods like he was offering them to Santa. So you could hear things like, I'm really sorry Santa, I think we've only got a bit of black pudding. Do you like that? And I started to think, I actually started to believe that Santa was in the other room. And to this day, it's just been a bit of magic that all the presents and all the things you can open in the world, it, it's the excitement that's the real magic. And I felt very, very blessed to have parents that cared enough to make sure every moment was magical. And I'll always remember that.
0: That was Scottish singer and songwriter Pauline Alexander with A Christmas Memory and a lovely song she co-wrote with Edwin Kalker called The Dreamer. Oh, we've got one more from Pauline, and it's a special one. Love Came Down at Christmas. And she kindly sent in this note to me, just a couple of lines, biography on that song. She writes, Love Came Down at Christmas is a duet with a singer-songwriter here in the UK called Marina Florence. We performed at the same acoustic festival on two different stages back in 2013 and have remained in contact ever since. Love Came Down at Christmas is a poem originally written by English writer Christina Rossetti, music by Marina Florence, and Del Oseawusu, and Mark Jolly on violin. Once again, Pauline Alexander, this time with Marina Florence, Love Came Down at Christmas. Love
4: came down at Christmas.
8: Love, all lovely, love divine.
4: Love
10: was born. Christmas.
0: Lovely was that, Pauline Alexander. Love came down at Christmas. She co-wrote that one with
1: Marina Florence. So, so Tom, we've got some themes, as we tend to do, running through the Great American Folk Show. Uh, we had John Doe of X, and, of course, one of their big hits was Johnny hit-and-run Pauline. We just had Pauline Alexander. <laughs> and like John Doe and X scenes vague, and maybe not uh, punk rock, but uh, you have yourself a semi-regular singing partner in Heidi Gluck. Well, it's interesting
0: that you bring this up because John Doe uh, was as instrumental for me as Juliana Hatfield.
1: Oh, yeah, Yeah. I should know. I interviewed her when she had
0: her uh, autobiography. You know, you're mentioning about all these connections, and I have one more that you probably didn't know about. So John Doe, for me, is my ultimate mentor. And I think for Heidi Gluck, who I'm going to talk about in just a second, her sort of mentor was Juliana Hatfield. And back when I was touring with John and when Heidi was touring with Juliana as some girls, we were all in contact with each other. John and Juliana were our friends. Uh, Heidi and I are friends, and we all became friends with each other, and I even did some touring with Juliana Hatfield. So the connection is really deep. The circle, it's a really tight
1: one. This whole punk-folk parallel universe that you (laughs) run in, another surprise. So I've learned recently you opened up for P.J. Harvey, and you toured with Julianna yes. Hatfield. I love it. Who, by the way, if you if you want a good uh, autobiography about what it's like to tour in the dingiest, awfulest of clubs in America, <laughs> read Juliana Hatfield's biography uh, autobiography. It is quite revealing. Well, we played in Baltimore, too. Huh? Is it a place called Fletcher's? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Fletcher's, one of the great rock clubs. In uh, Baltimore. Last time I was there, I interviewed Tom Morello, the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer of Rage Against the Machine. He was doing a solo show there. And you you interviewed him at Fletcher's? Yeah,
0: And is that place still around? No,
1: no, it does not exist.
0: Well, one other recurring theme, of course, is the holidays. And uh, Heidi Gluck, who I just mentioned, very talented singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist extraordinaire. Well, I got in touch with her recently, and we decided to do a special rendition of... The Great Old Standard Silent Night. And I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Heidi Gluck, are you ready? Key of A. Ready. Silent Night. Before we begin, I wonder if you wouldn't mind plugging in that beautiful electric bass. I love your bass playing. Okay. You're one of my favorites, Heidi. <laughs> silent
4: Mm Oh
1: Tom Brusseau and Heidi Gluck with all the feels for the season, Silent Nights. So, Tom, you have been touring in the area, the area meaning uh, Montana, the Dakotas, Minnesota, uh, with some cowboy poets singing folks. Uh, yeah. So what, what has that been like? Uh, tell folks about the tour briefly and just uh, some of your thoughts about it. Well, it's, it's called the Magical Medora Christmas Tour, with bill
0: Sorensen, and bill is has been you know producing this tour for for many years and uh, a lot of folks listening to this in in our area in north dakota south dakota minnesota montana they'll know that name because um he's he's been a performer and he was he was mayor and uh, he managed virgil hill the you know award-winning boxer Mm -hmm. um, rough rider so bill sort of gets a a cast of really cool but a total motley crew every year and from scratch we build the set and we pick the music we arrange it and we do the blocking and costumes and everything so we kind of like start from scratch every year and we we host a show we put on a show and we travel around to you know hopefully inspire people and um showcase some of the talent here in North Dakota. What was your uh, costume? What did you
1: wear? Well, I have several, Eric. <laughs> you got a wardrobe and an entourage, <laughs> so I'm just Tom. saying I, I wear a cummerbund, all right? Oh, a cummerbund? <laughs> yeah, are you going to prom?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Stag. I'm going to go to Stag. <clears throat> there are several costumes, and they're just dynamite. And I don't know if you put on a costume. This is different than... You know like a a trick-or-treat costume but like you know a a nice tux and a tie and it just kind of makes you makes you feel differently makes Mm -hmm. you feel like well maybe that you're walking on air so over the course of the show it's about a two hour long show there's about um five costume changes oh boy and it ranges from a sequin uh red sequin thing to a. to, to a gray suit, to a black suit, to a silver suit.
1: It, okay, so th- again, one of those uh, terrible questions like picking your own kid. What audience sort of uh, made the biggest impression on you on the tour?
0: Well, there have been many, many audiences. Over the course of this tour, we will have visited 10,000 people, oh. which is really great. But Fergus Falls
5: was Fergus Falls. just
0: something special about it. I don't know what it was. I don't think you can define it. It might have just been the right time or the right minute. But they were so warm and uh, so receptive and responsive. You couldn't you couldn't lose. You know, a- everything just went over perfectly.
1: Where was the uh, auditorium? Was it downtown? Right downtown. Yeah, it's a nice D- downtown. Fergus
0: yeah. Falls, uh, you know, theater right
1: down there, which is a lovely facility, by the way. So Ottertail River folks and Fergus Falls, <laughs> you win the prize. I love you, <laughs> Tom Bruce. prize? All right. Got any uh, parting thoughts as we head out of here for the the holidays, Tom? Well, you know. <sighs>
0: Yes, I do. I hope that you have a wonderful Christmas. And I hope you had a happy Hanukkah and a soulful solstice. Whatever it is that you celebrate, or if you don't, good tidings to you and to yours. And thanks for listening to the Great American Folk Show. And thanks to our sponsors, Minn Kota Power Cooperative, the Lorac Family, the Blair Flegel Estate, and the John and Elaine Andrist Charitable Trust. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks for Episode 6, make sure you like and subscribe to the Great American Folk Show podcast wherever you get them. That was very lovely, Tom. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, pal. Here's to 2024.
1: A long December, and there's reason to believe Maybe this year will be better than the last can